Grab your Bible so we can get there, and let's go to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Now, one of my favorite movies in the world is Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Like, I think Braveheart is one of those, just sort of, he built that movie to make grown men cry, right? It's like, it's one of those, it's all about freedom, it's all about this, you know, this, 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 these epic battle scenes and epic moments, and it's, it's, it's a story about a man, so many of you know, his name's William Wallace, and I don't know, I think it was like the 1300s, I'm probably getting that wrong, and, and he was one of the leaders, he was a Scottish knight who became one of the leaders during the, uh, the, the Scottish Wars of Independence, I think it was against William I. Uh, of England. And, and so it's this battle to maintain and to gain their independence from, uh, great, from, from, from the British crown. And, and he leads the fight. It's got all these, it's got these amazing quotes in, in that, uh, that, that, that movie, like, you know, uh, every man dies, but not every man lives. Like, I love that. That's, that's, a, that's a great quote, right? And there's this point when I think it's the, the Battle of uh, Stirling Bridge or something like that. It's just this huge scene, right? And there, there's all the, the Scotsmen that has come out to face William I's army, and they're standing in battle array, and, and the Scots are getting very nervous. Their noblemen have not been able to get them going and, and believe that they can actually win this battle. And some of them start to turn back and turn away and on to the scene rides William Wallace and he's you know painted kind of blue in his face he looks intimidating he's got this massive sword and he's on his horse and he he rides on the battle scene and he looks at the Scotsman and says what's going on they're starting to leave and so this is when he makes that big epic speech and I, I can't do a Scottish accent and I'm not going to try but, but you remember, some of you who've seen the movie, you'll remember, he says, sons of Scotland, remember this? And he begins to cry out and says, fight and you may die, run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day for that, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our free, take our lives, but they'll never take and there's our freedom. And all the guys are like, yes, that's so true, right? It's just this beautiful moment. It's just awesome. It's all about, so the whole movie is about fighting. What are you willing to do to keep your freedom? That is the message of Galatians. That is the whole message of the book of Galatians. Paul is saying, somebody has called the book of Galatians the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, of Christian freedom. And if, if Galatians as a book is the Magna Carta of Christian freedom, then Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 is the key verse to the entire book. So look at this with me. Listen to what Paul says. He's been arguing this over and over. He's just talked about slavery under Hagar, freedom under Sarah. And with that still ringing in the Galatians' ears, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is Paul's battle cry. This is what he's saying. This summarizes everything Paul has said from chapters 1 to 4, and it becomes the basis, the foundation for everything from here forward. And what it looks like to walk in freedom, what it looks like to not submit to a yoke of, 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 of slavery. Now, here's what I want you to notice. This order is important. He starts off and he gives this kind of, this, if you will, this assertion. Okay, for freedom. I'm telling you, 
Christ has set you free. And he set you free for a purpose. And that's that you would be free. Then he says, in light of that assertion, in light of what Christ has done, stand firm. I mean, this is battle language. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is that battlefield speech. Here we go. We're going to fight, and you're going to have to stand firm. But the power to stand firm isn't just on your own. He's saying, Christ has set you free. Christ is on your side. We're going to see the Spirit of Christ dwells in you and gives you the power to do what he asks you to do. That's the idea. Stand firm, therefore. Don't submit to this yoke of slavery. See, I think we all know, I hope you know this, like freedom is a fragile thing, right? Even political freedom, national freedom. We don't just go, we're free, now we do nothing. No, we're free. And in fact, that's one of the reasons behind a military. That's one of the reasons behind a police. It's that the idea is that they ought to be able to protect the freedoms that we so, you know, so love and embrace, it takes vigilance because freedom is a fragile thing. And what's true in the political realm, what's true in a national realm, is true in the spiritual realm. That our freedom is fragile. Like we, we have to remind ourselves, we have to come back to the truth every day that we are free. We must fight to preserve it. That's why I said a few weeks ago, see, see one of the reasons you ought to come to church every single week this ought to be a rhythm of your life. And whether this is your church or not, you ought to be somewhere or somebody every single week of your life reminds you of the truth that because Jesus died, you're free. Because what your heart will do if you don't, we have very fragile hearts, we have very fickle hearts, and they, they fall back into this mode of, I've got to do something for God to love me. And everything about us just resets to that position. This is why you ought to come to church. This is why you say, I, it's not an issue of I want to today. It's an issue of I must, I must listen. I must hear. I must be reminded in the Lord's Supper that he died for me. I must do that on a continuous basis. This is why so many of you are in growth groups. Because what are we doing? reminding ourselves we're getting around what we call gospel-centered friends that are going to be part of that journey to help us say, man, remember, let's stand firm together. This is we link arms. We're not going to submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is a, a command, but it's a plural command that Paul gives to, to y'all stand firm. That's the idea. Not just you individually. Everyone stand firm. Don't submit. You're going to need each other. Don't submit to this yoke of slavery, right? Because standing firm is a battle every day for a Christian. We have, we have, we have shirts that maybe some of you have seen. We made it several years ago that says fight for joy. That's the idea. Why? Because you're in a daily battle for your joy that only the gospel can bring you. John Calvin, the great reformer, said it this way. Christian freedom is an inestimable blessing for which we should fight even to the death. For we're not talking here about our hearths, but about our altars. What does he mean? 
He means you're not just fighting for land and home. You're fighting for what you worship. And what you worship determines your destiny. He says, for that reason, your Christian freedom is worth fighting to the death over. It's that important. And this is what Paul's saying. He, He wants to make sure we understand this. Now, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Now, what does that mean? What is this freedom that Paul speaks of? I want to make sure you understand this. I want, to, I want you to know what it doesn't mean, and let me tell you what it means. Let's start off with what it doesn't mean. Freedom, when Paul says freedom, for freedom, he doesn't mean political freedom. Now, look, at we're Americans. We, we, we have certain inalienable rights, we say. There's all these things. We have religious freedom right now, and that's a good thing, and that ought to be something that we stand for. That's right, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul isn't saying for political freedom, Christ, Paul is under a regime. He is not free. The Roman rule does not make people free in Paul's day. You submitted to the Caesar. You bowed to the Caesar. You said Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. That's the kind of persecution that's happening in Paul's day. But he says to these Galatians, for freedom, Christ has set us free. This isn't political freedom. Second of all, it's not not moral freedom. You understand there are boundaries to the Christian life? Right? When we talk about freedom, it doesn't mean I get to do, I can sin with impunity, right? That That the Christian life should not make me less holy, it ought to make me more holy. In fact, you're going to see this unpacked in the weeks to come. There are behaviors that should come out of somebody who is a genuine Christian. There ought to be, what you're going to find out at the end of chapter 5, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? All these things that that ought to be true of the Christian. And other things, he says, the, the deeds of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, those things should not be. There are behavioral, can I say it this way? Behavioral boundaries to the Christian life. I didn't say you become a Christian by behaving. You are a Christian, and therefore, there's behavior that comes out of that, right? That's the idea. This isn't isn't moral, unbounded, now I can do whatever I want. Thirdly, it's not theological freedom, doctrinal freedom, right? So now, I can believe whatever I want. Just like there's behavioral boundaries, there's, there's boundaries to your theology. You can't just take the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. There have been doctrines that have been handed down to us from the apostles to the church fathers all through history where we say we recognize that. We recognize the creeds and things like that. We don't put them at the level of Scripture, but we say there are boundaries. This is what the church has fought for and died for. Because all these things were encroaching on freedom. One way or another, these these creeds were meant to fight against people who would say, no, you want us to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't submit to that, Paul says. This isn't about a theological freedom where I can say, you know, if I believe that, you believe that, whatever. We can just believe what we want to believe. No, you can't. You believe what the Bible tells you to believe. The fourth, it's not personal freedom. Now, here's what I mean. We talked about moral freedom. What I mean by personal freedom is there's this, it's, it's almost like if I could say, what are, the, what, are the, um, what are the core values of Americans? I, I would express, one of them would be just be yourself. 
or just be true to yourself. Something like this, right? That is so unbiblical, right? We live in this age where we say it's all about just be authentic, which I find so ironic because we're so inauthentic. I mean, Facebook is filled with acting, right? It is, it is, it is I mean, I, I, I wish you, you know, the Mother's Day that you see in Facebook, right? It's because it's not the same, is it? Right? I, I wish my life, your life, was actually as good as it appears in your, your story feed on Instagram. But it's not, is it? There's so much play acting going on. But we think yeah, authenticity, this, this be true to yourself. The Bible never says be true to yourself. It says die to yourself. It says the point isn't you. The point is you becoming more like Jesus. The point is take up your cross and follow him. The point is have your, have your mind, right? Have your, have your mind renewed, right? That, 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 you would, you would, that, that you would walk in a renewed mind with Jesus. There would be something different about you. We don't have that kind of unbounded freedom. So see, here's what happens. If you draw the boundaries around theological freedom and moral freedom and all these things that we said it's not, if you draw those things so tight, you'll end up with what we call legalism. But if you unloosen them and say, man, there are no boundaries, then you end up with what we call relativism. Right? There is no truth. I can do whatever I want with myself, right? And here's the Galatians. The Galatians are in danger. I mean, Paul's fighting for their freedom. They have gone from being, let's say, amoral liberals. Just do whatever. doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. But they're just as in much danger because now it looks like what they might do, Paul's fighting against, you're going to see even as he continues to argue through this book of Galatians, now they're in danger of becoming moral conservatives, thinking that somehow if I behave, God owes me. And Paul says both will leave you in slavery. Both are not what's necessary to get to God. That's not how you work your way to God. In fact, you don't. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Okay, so what is freedom? If it's not all those things, what is freedom? Let me give you a definition, okay? I think Christian freedom means you have been liberated from the bondage of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are enabled to love God with all your heart and love your neighbors as yourself. Only God can do that. Only God can give you a heart that loves him. See, see, in other words, God sets you free to love him and love other people. See this again at the end. It's he sets you free to, and he gives you the fruit of the Spirit. That's what freedom is. Freedom is your ability to say, I wholly enjoy being loving and patient and kind and joyful and all of these kinds of things that are the fruit of the Spirit. God has given me these desires. This is the fruit. Of, see, I think, I think most Christians know, if, you, if I ask you the question, are you free? Free from sin? Yep. Free from condemnation? Yeah, I am. I think we know this objectively, if I can say it that way. Right? We know that is sort of this truth that's out of there, out there. Our problem, I think one of the main Christian problems, is that we have to, be, we have to learn to be free from the power of sin. This is a lifetime of learning subjectively. 
by experience. So, so I love how one guy says it. He, he, he says that sanctification is thus simply the art of getting used to justification. That is that I have been set free. Now sanctification is me realizing what that really means and then walking in that. See, this is what God wants for you. God wants you not just to sort of know this up here. I know it objectively. I could pass the test. He wants you to know this so that it, it informs your entire life. I'm free. I'm genuinely free. I'm free to love him. I'm free to love others. Okay. Now Paul's going to win. I, I spent most of my time. I promise you we're going to move through this faster. But Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. What's so bad about that? Why, Paul, why shouldn't we submit to a yoke of slavery? Okay? Paul's going to basically say this. If you believe that the way you're saved is that it's, you know, if you believe that, that Christ plus something else equals salvation, then you've got a lot of problems. Okay? So let's, let's start reading. The first thing he's going to say, if you believe that Christ plus something equals salvation, then you believe that Christ's work was insufficient. So look at chapter 5 again and go down to verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Okay, so here they are in danger. Somebody's come along and said, that the, the false teachers have come along and said, look, you just need to be circumcised. You just need to obey the Old Testament law. You've got to add that to the work of Christ and you can be saved. You can't be saved otherwise. Paul says, no, if you submit, if you agree, if you believe that teaching, you cannot be saved. You've got to accept one or the other. And Paul says, here I am on the, on, the, on the base of my apostolic authority. If you go back to chapter 1, you're going to hear him say, I didn't receive this gospel from anybody else. I received it from Christ, and I'm passing it along to you. This is the gospel. You cannot be saved if you believe that Christ's work on the cross wasn't sufficient for you. He says, it's going to be no advantage. Christ is no benefit. Because what are you doing? You're putting your hope in something other than Christ, in your obedience to get you saved. And he said, if that's what you're doing, then you're not putting your hope in Christ. You're not worshiping Christ. You're not seeing what he does as sufficient, and it's of no advantage. Second of all, he says, if you believe it's Christ plus something, then he says, then you must obey all the law. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Right? I mean, in other words, if it, look, it's, it's not as easy as you think. Oh, just go get circumcised. No, 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 he says to the men. He says, if you do that, then you're, it's, it's all or nothing. And, and the problem is, is that you are incapable of keeping all the law. The law, as Paul said over and over, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 10 even, he says, there's no way. That's not possible. No one can keep all the law. Because even if you can behave outwardly, there's things that are wrong in your heart. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus saying, I tell you, you heard it, you can't commit adultery. I tell you, anybody who lusts after a woman in his heart, you've already done it. So my problem isn't my outward behavior. Now I look in and go, my problem is my heart. And I can't cleanse that. I, I can't keep all the law, but I must if I'm going to accept part of it. If you believe it's Christ from, plus something, then, then Paul says, number three, then you're cut off from Christ. Verse four, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
You are, you are not saved. You're out of a relationship. If you believe you must mingle your merit with Christ's grace, you lose everything. John Calvin said, again, he says, whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. You can't do it. The Bible won't let you do that, right? See, everyone in the world is trying to make themselves right. This is what it means to be justified. I'm trying to make myself, I, I need to be right before God. And so everybody's running around in one way or another trying to make themselves right before God. And Paul says you can't do it. Either Christ did it all or it hasn't been done. And where's your hope? What are you putting it in? Now, let's keep going. Because look what he does in, in verse 5. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Here's what Paul's doing. Okay, so I've just told you the bad news. Here's the good news. Here is the gospel, if you will. Paul says, I want you to hear the gospel again. Now, let me, let me look, at, look at verse 5 again, and let me sort of rephrase it, because I think the way it's phrased, at least in the ESV, makes you kind of go, now, what's happening here? Okay, l- l- let's say it this way. It, by faith, we eagerly await through the power of the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. Now let me unpack that. So by faith, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that he is totally sufficient. Now, the Spirit comes to dwell in me, and through the power of the Spirit, now I eagerly wait for the righteousness for which we hope. Now, here's what I want you to hear. A genuine Christian, one of the cries of a genuine Christian's heart is this, and test yourself on this. It is the desire to be more righteous. It is a desire to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And we hope for that. And then now, here's one of the problems with the word hope. In the English language, hope can mean something like, you know, I hope for something, but it may or may not happen, right? So kids, if, if you say to your parents, I hope that tomorrow is a nice day so I can play outside. Your parents have no power, no control over that, right? And they, they can't help you, and that is nothing more than kind of a, a dream. Maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. It might rain, it might do something, whatever, but it might not happen for you. That's not the kind of hope in Scripture. The hope in Scripture is a certainty. So, I mean, I can analogize it to your parents saying to you, tomorrow I'm going, to, I'm going to get you out of school, I'm going to pick you up at this time, and we're going to Disneyland, right? Woo, right? You'd be like, okay, now that's a different kind of hope. Now you're hoping. I can't wait. I'm looking for that, right? And, and based on what I know about the trustworthiness of my mom and dad, it's going to happen. And the promise of Scripture is that God has made a promise to you through faith in Jesus Christ that one day you will be made perfectly righteous. All your sin gone. All your brokenness in the past. Not even a temptation. Not even I want to sin. Can you imagine this? This is the hope. And Paul says that hope is going to happen. And the Spirit empowers you to believe that, to hold on to that. And says this is, this is, a, this is a certainty. God keeps His promises. This is why Paul's going to say that hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
And then he says, the Spirit likewise helps us in our weakness. What's one of our weaknesses? Waiting for that hope with patience. And the Spirit comes along and says, come on, keep going. I got you. I'm going to empower you to do this. That's God. That's what He does in our lives. Okay, so, so let's do this really quick. So, so if work, if, if working for God doesn't merit salvation, then how do we obtain, how do we receive salvation? Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Doesn't matter if you obey all the law, right? Don't obey. It counts for nothing, but only faith expressing itself, only faith working through love, okay? So what, what, what's the answer? How is it that I obtain the salvation? By faith. Not by circumcision, not by uncircumcision, but only through faith. And it's faith working through love. In other words, love proves the genuineness of faith. Love for who? Well, first for God. We love God. We pursue God. We cherish God. We're committed to God. But second of all, love for each other, so much so that John is going to say this. If you say you love God but are apathetic is the best way I can say it because we use hate and we think visceral and angry and I'll murder you. The idea there is apathy. You're apathetic toward, let me translate it here, church folk. Then you're a liar. If you say you love God but you hate the person in your home, you don't love God. If you say you love God and, 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 and people among the household of faith are just like, whatever, I can take them or leave them, you don't love God. It's faith expressing itself. One of the tests of your faith is, do you love God and do you love other people? See, see do you see this in yourself? Is that coming out of you? I'm totally committed I'm not apathetic. Parents, do you see this in your kids? And here's why I mention this, because so many of us are, are, are okay with just outward behavior. Man, as long as little Johnny and Jane don't embarrass me, then I'm good. As long as they are well-behaved and good students and all these sort of markers that we can put on the wall and say they've done this, then we're good. No. Do you see faith expressing itself, working through love? See, in other words, does your child have a heart for God? Does your child have a transform? Look at, I can't, I can't make myself love you like that. I can't make myself love God like that. God comes and says, by faith, the Spirit's going to come and work in you. It's going to give you patience. It's going to do all these things you're going to see at the end of chapter 5, but it's going to express itself through love. Genuine faith always produces love. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that for freedom Christ has set us free. And I pray we'd hear the warnings and I pray again we'd hear the gospel. That you have given us this hope of righteousness and through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit one day that's all going to be true. And so our obedience, our disobedience when it comes to being saved means nothing. Only faith. Believing in Jesus Christ. 
And then out of that flows rivers of obedience, rivers of holiness, because you've changed our hearts to desire things that we used to not desire. God, do that today. Confirm in our hearts where that's true, and God, challenge us, convict us where it's not, and may we turn in repentance to you where it's not. And I pray for people in this room today that, Lord, they are far from you, and maybe they've heard the gospel, even children here today, and that, God, they would put their faith, their hope in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can save them. We love you, we thank you, we praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.